morning. It's a delight to be with you. I'm so sorry that uh, Ken Davis couldn't make it. I was looking forward to meeting him myself and uh, having him share about his vision as well. But uh, I'll take the day with you today uh, in the shortened conference and hope that uh, we can accomplish some of the goals that were set out for this particular meeting about cross-cultural evangelism. So thank you for having me, Matt, and for your church. Uh, we do appreciate the regular support that you folks give to uh, Pacific Rim Mission for our uh, seminaries uh, over in Asia, and I'll be sharing a little bit about that here in just a moment, and uh, your support of Valiente family and the teaching that they do. So uh, just on the record here, thank you. Really appreciate your prayers and support and uh, your your mission's heart, your heart for the gospel uh, truly is a, a blessing to have you folks partnering with us in what we do. So I uh, was talking with Matt and the whole idea of the um, conference, you know, from the beginning has been about cross-cultural relevance in terms of the gospel, reaching those that uh, might look a little bit different, uh, have different cultural elements that are very much different than ours. And how do we, how do we do that? How do we, I think about this community here, and I know how much it's changed um, because my dad actually was from Greenville, North Carolina. And so we would come down to Eastern North Carolina since I was probably five, six, seven years old. So all the way through my growing up years, we spent time in Greenville, Raleigh, all the way down to Wilmington with all of his family uh, in this part of the state. And so I'm very aware of how much the Raleigh-Durham area has changed over the years. And in terms of just the um, socioeconomic makeup of this uh, area. And so if we're talking about a local church, then you're also uh, probably talking about a local church probably should mirror its local community, right? And so uh, sometimes we, right, we pray for people to go to the mission field and we're excited when they go, and we want to support them when they go, and and we feel really, really good about that. Like, yes, we're a church that believes in the gospel, and, and we send people out to do missionary work. But on the other hand, sometimes the mission field comes to us, moves into our area, <laughs> moves in next door. Now I work with them. Now our children play together on sports teams. And so how do we uh, how do we reach them? And so I'm hoping today, I'm just kind of giving you a, a, a cursory look into the, the flow of the messages today. I want to balance it with that, um, that biblical foundation side. Oh, this is how the gospel penetrated cross-culturally. And, and I actually have a passage I can look at and say, ah, I get that. And at the same time, just sharing some uh, practical insights into 
how do you evangelize a community of people that is different culturally? So in Sunday school, I'd like to start with more of the practical side, just by virtue of the fact that for the last 12 years, uh, we, our mission and uh, myself and others, we have been investing ourselves cross-culturally uh, in terms of reaching Asia with the gospel. And you know what's interesting, uh, and some of the New Testament writers point to this, Paul points to this, uh, particularly in his discussions on the gospel. He said, you know, the gospel was preached before time in Abraham. It's like, what? In Abraham? I mean, he starts in like Genesis 12. What, what do you mean the gospel? And, and oftentimes when we think about the gospel, we think, oh, yeah, of course. Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Jesus, death, burial, resurrection, early church history, Acts and forward, great gospel passages. And yet Paul says, no, the gospel was preached beforehand by Abraham. What? How did Abraham preach the gospel? And he goes all the way back to Genesis chapter 22, verse 18, whenever Abraham was called by God to be willing to sacrifice his son Isaac as a test of obedience to the Lord. And because Abraham passed that test, it would be through his seed as a man of faith that the gospel would literally come to all the nations. And Paul refers to Genesis 22.18 and says, here's how the gospel was preached through Abraham in you. All the nations of the earth will be blessed. And that was pointing to Christ, the Messiah, who would become the savior of all the nations, the savior of the world. So when we talk about the gospel, uh, you know, we have to make sure that we understand it, both Old Testament and New Testament. It's the same gospel, whatever testament it is in. And so let's look at how that plays out in terms of uh, some this morning, some challenges and insights into cross-cultural evangelism. So through PRMI, Pacific Rim Missions International, by the way, just while I'm thinking about it, uh, or it'll slip my mind later. Uh, back on the table uh, in the foyer there, uh, we have some prayer cards, and we would absolutely love for you to pick one up if you don't have one, and just pray for our ministry of Pacific Rim missions. But So as a mission, we have been working cross-culturally uh, for the last 12 years in uh, the Pacific Rim, and our primary goal has been to both evangelize, to take the gospel, and to equip, to train Asian nationals to preach and to teach the gospel and to take it to their own. So uh, at presently, we are in three different countries, and they're all very different. So we're in the Philippines, and we are in Myanmar which is the old, uh, you might know it by the name, Burma. And then this fall, we're getting ready to start a third seminary in India, in the northeastern part of India, uh, kind of 
you have the main part of India and you have this little isthmus up here that connects it to northeastern India and you've got Nepal and Bangladesh and Myanmar and so it's a very strategic location up in that area. So three different countries, three different religions, actually maybe four. So the Philippines is probably about 90% Roman Catholic. Uh, Myanmar is about 90% Buddhist. And uh, India is, I can't quite remember, but it's largely Hindu. And in uh, some certain parts of the Philippines, we also have some Muslim uh, interaction. So several different faiths across the spectrum. Different languages, different dialects, uh, hundreds of dialects in the Philippines and Myanmar and India. And uh, some people, you know, when I share things like this, they're like, wow, that must be difficult. But our main campus on the island of Negros uh, in the Philippines, on the same island, they speak two different languages. And the people on the western side of the island Negros Occidental, do not understand the language of the people on the east side of the island. So on the west side, they speak Ilongo, and on the east side, they speak Cebuano. And the reason that happened is because right down the middle of the island, there's this very tall, dangerous mountain range. And so people never cross the mountain range on the same island. Uh, you know, robbers, and, and there's some military groups up in there. So you basically risked your life to cross. So it was actually easier to get into a boat and go, you know, 35 minutes to an hour west to Iloilo, which is where the Ilongo language comes from, or on this side of the island to go a 35 to 40 minute boat ride over to Cebu. And that's where the Cebuano language comes from. So the people on the eastern side just gravitated to Cebuano because they had more interaction there, and the people on the western side to Iloilo because they had more interactions there. And so these are the kinds of different dynamics that you get into evangelizing uh, on foreign fields. And so different religions, different dialects, and, and even within those uh, dialects, there are different cultural aspects. Even within the same people group, there are different cultural aspects that you have to deal with. So I'd like to just talk this morning about uh, some of the challenges and the insights into cross-cultural evangelism. And I'm specifically talking about this in relation to what we see in working with different cultures and different religions and, and different languages. And then hopefully some of this will also translate and apply to your situation here. And so uh, we'll just kind of jump into this practical aspect. I think the first thing that I've had to do is learn how to rethink. And sometimes you have to do that, right? Because in America, we get into this certain tunnel vision, this mindset that everyone must think the way that we do. And it's like, really? <clears throat> Actually, you're probably, in terms of your thinking, in the minority when it comes to the world. 
And I've realized that there are a lot of things that, that I know and understand as an American that I really need to rethink when it comes to evangelizing with the gospel in terms of reaching a different culture. Um, we tend to view the rest of the world through a very narrow lens, and I hate to pop your bubble if you were born and raised here and what have you, but I'm sorry, it's just not that way in the rest of the world. Oh, okay. So most people don't think like I do. Yeah, and it's okay to admit that. More than once, it's, you know, kind of taking a little humility to say, oh, that's actually a good idea to a foreigner. Oh, I see how you see that. I never would have thought of it that way. Just because, obviously, our perspective, the way we were brought up, tends to in good ways and bad ways, color and sometimes even cloud our view of other people and cultures around us. So cultures process information very differently. Some cultures are very simple and very practical, and theolog uh, theology is very picture-oriented for them. When I go to the Philippines, or when I teach in the South Pacific Islands, like young people from uh, Panape and Koshrai and Chuk and Palau and Yap and places like that, I make sure that my theology, my teaching, is full of day-to-day -day life illustrations because I can stand up here all day and teach some concept theologically, but if they are not conceptual-oriented in terms of their thinking and understanding, they just sit there and they're like, la, 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 la. They don't get it. But if I say, you know, uh, this, this, uh, this word right here, reconciliation. You know, the other day I was out and I was talking with, and they're like, Oh, okay, that makes sense now. I get that. And so I had to reorient my teaching from more of like a, a, a purely academic level with these theological words and, oh, you need to get these concepts biblically to let me rethink how to take that term and to put it in a daily life illustration that they would understand. And when you do, boom. They get it. So some are very simple and very practical, and, and theology becomes more like painting a picture. You become this artist in the pulpit that paints a picture, and it makes sense to them when you talk about a concept, but they see it in a picture. On the other hand, if I am teaching in Japan or Korea, right, you are talking about very well-educated. In fact, you are talking about today extremely strong technological societies, right? Computers and cars and, and all kinds of technology comes out of these. I can, in, in those countries, be a translator usually, but I can talk about biblical concepts 
and they are forward-thinking enough and educated enough that they can put two and two together. And it's like, okay. So when I go from Japan to Guam, just that three-hour flight right there, three, four-hour flight, my teaching is completely different because you're learning to rethink how different cultures process information. And some cultures, they get it. They're very conceptual. And you can get up and talk about some theological term, and they're like, yep, yep, yep. And in other cultures, it's like, you better paint a picture or they're not going to get it. And so you have to, in that sense, there are challenges in understanding how people group thinks. And once you realize how they think, then you can tailor the gospel to their understanding. Very important. Another uh, um, practical challenge. Asians in particular, because that's the part of the world we work in, and maybe even the rest of the world, I would say. Uh, a few years ago, I did a lot of traveling through Europe, uh, particularly Western Europe, five countries uh, tour, and uh, I saw the same thing there. And I'm like, huh, this is very much like Asia in this regard. Uh, some parts of the world I haven't been to, and so I wouldn't be able to necessarily speak. But from things I hear, we might be the odd man out as America in terms of this point. And that is, Asians, and maybe the rest of the world, are much more relational. Whereas, as Americans, we are much more task-oriented. People-oriented versus task-oriented. In fact, we were just talking about this, I think, yesterday uh, with your wife, and, and we were like, oh my goodness, some of these cultures, they even here, and I see this in the rest of the world, they fix their meals so late, and they eat so late, and they're, you know, they're just starting to get hungry and to eat at 9 or 10 o'clock, and that's when they love it. It's just like me. I'd never be able to sleep, you know, or I, I would never. It's just like, this is part of our culture. And, you know, I got to thinking about that, and I thought there are two reasons for that. One is, in most of the rest of the world, no one has air conditioning, and so cooking at night when the temperatures are cooler makes a lot of practical common sense in terms of heating up the home, and that, that could be one factor. It is in the Philippines. It's like, it's just too hot. <laughs> let's wait till the sun goes down, and let's wait till things start to cool down a little bit at night, and then we'll you know make a fire so we can do a little bit of cooking. But the other thing is, in most of the rest of the world, mealtime is actually relational time. It's where people actually just sit and they talk and they laugh and they converse about their day. And they, you know, I, I saw that when we were in Europe, we would go to a restaurant and eat and they would never come check on you. You, you could be three or four hours there and they'd never say anything in America. It's like, 
okay, here, do you guys need anything else? Okay, I'll bring your check. Okay, you know, and it's like, you know, room for the next person. Okay, get that meal down. And even even our family meals, right? It can be like, okay, this is what we're eating. Okay, now what do we have? We have homework and we have to do this. And, and I got some chores to do. And, I, and so we eat in almost a very task-oriented way. Like, okay, let's just get this done because we have more to do. But in the rest of the world, it's like, what else do you have to do? Except to sit around and talk as a family and, and eat together and laugh together and share stories together. And so this is one thing that I've seen is that it becomes very, uh, in terms of different cultures, they're much more relational. And so in that regard, and this is true across the board, at mealtime, they're having conversations of a personal nature, and we always have to remember that relationships, even our relationship with God, is built on the fundamental principle of trust, right? To trust someone. In most of the rest of the world, the personal relationship with someone comes first, you get to know them, and you know what kind of person they are, and you trust them. And then, in time, comes the personal conversation about a relationship with God. Because they're not really going to invest information into someone they don't really trust or know. Uh, I think about getting our seminary started in the Philippines. And it took us about 10 years. And nine of those years were just going back two or three times a year and building relationships. This is our goal. Preach in your churches. Go out to eat. Talk about life and Filipino culture and get to know each other. And just year after year after year doing this. Preach in your churches. Oh, I like the way you teach. I, yeah, that's very good. Okay, okay, we trust you now. Okay, we're getting ready to start a seminary. Okay, we'll send our young people. And that's the way it is. If you think, uh, particularly with different cultures, especially the way I was brought up, if you think primarily that you're going to knock on a door and say, hey, my name is Mark Kittrell, and I'm from College Park Baptist Church, and we're just kind of doing some canvassing in the area and um, just, you know, want to invite you out to our church sometime. And, hey, do you mind if I ask you a question? Yeah, sure. If, if you died today, would you go to heaven? I mean, I'm not saying that's wrong or, you know, that that is, but it's like, um, what business do you have asking me that question? Because I don't know you and I don't trust you and we don't have a relationship and I'm sorry, but that's something that, that happens over years of spending time together and building relationships. I'm not saying I won't talk about that, but in this setting, no. So the rest of the world seems to be much more relational. We seem to be very task-oriented. And if we're not careful, then if our evangelism is driven as more of a task orientation rather than a relational orientation, it's just not going to have as significant as an impact in other cultures, right? So that would be a second thing. A third thing, 
the disposition of many Asian peoples, and I think particularly of Filipino, I think of Japanese, I think of Cambodian, uh, Vietnamese, um, I think of um, uh, uh, Thai, I think of Burmese, I mean, so many. The disposition of many Asian peoples is, now this would not be true for Italians and <laughs> some others, but is very much humility and quietness. So there is a shyness to conversation in general, and in particular, conversation that is very personal. Like, what? Life and death? Heaven and hell? <laughs> okay, we're just not going to talk about that right now. And many times when I go over, I find myself carrying the conversation because that's just kind of how we are in some ways as Americans. And I've learned to step back. And at times, especially as a preacher, right? Just zip it. Just, just if I can use the term, just smart, just shut up. <laughs> just, just be quiet. Just give them time to think, give them time to process. Because you have to be patient with the thought processes of people from a different culture. Their thought processes are slower. Now, I didn't say dumber. Don't translate that. They're very intelligent, very smart. But they process information in a different way. And so for us, it's not this one-on confrontation at a door where you're sharing the gospel. For them, it's like, yeah, sure, you can talk to them about it. You know what? They may not say a word and just walk away. And you're thinking, oh, they just completely rejected the gospel message. And why? Are, are you sure about that? What if like the woman at the well in Samaria, John 4, as she's walking away, she's processing what you talked about. And by the time she gets to the town, she says, I need to tell you guys something. <laughs> so there's this shyness to conversation. And a lot of particularly Asian people, they take a lot of time to think before they speak. <laughs> we could learn from that. They're comfortable with quietness. They're comfortable with no immediate response. They're comfortable with you sharing all the information and then they say thank you and walk away. And it's like, okay, well, obviously that conversation didn't have any, whoa, wait a minute, let, let them be them. Culturally, that's how they do things. That's how they process. Um, we're not that way. <laughs> You know, we tend to want answers to life now. We want the question answered now. Uh, we have to be careful because we can tend to dominate conversation, especially like the gospel when we believe something with conviction. And it's like, here it is, here it is, here it is. Let me tell you, here's the verses. Jesus died, he was buried, and he rose again. And let me, okay, now what are you going to do? And they're like, oh, whoa, wait a minute. You know, you, you've done all the talking here. Give me some time to think about this. And so they haven't been exposed to Christianity like we have in this country. And many times they don't know what to think of it. You know, it's kind of like we'll see in the morning service when Paul preached his message in Acts 17. 
at Mars Hill, they were like, oh, now that's strange. We've never heard anything like that before. Okay, give us some time. Process it. It's okay. I'll be patient with that. I'm, I, this is not a message that I'm ramming down your throat. You have to get saved and you need to get saved. No, no, no. In fact, that does more harm than good. You will turn them off. If, if they feel pressured into making a decision that doesn't fit with their thought processes culturally, okay, you know what? That was probably too good to be true. <laughs> so I'll just move on to the next thing or I'll just dismiss what I heard. So uh, the disposition of many people culturally is very different, very quiet, very shy, very humble, uh, you know, so... We even have to be careful with dominating the conversation when it comes to sharing the gospel. You know, there are times where culturally, when you get together with people, you probably shouldn't even talk about the gospel. What? <laughs> Pastor Mark, did you just say that? And you're a preacher, you're an evangelist, you're a missions guy. And you say, get together with people, don't even talk about the gospel. Yeah. Just talk about life. Just build that relationship, which trust. Because I guarantee you at some point in time, that gospel opportunity will come up. And then they will be more ready to listen because they trust you. And you have learned in conversation that, yes, it's a two-way thing. <laughs> okay. I need to give them time to talk and express themselves and share about their lives. And, you know, this is a, a two-way street. So uh, take into account the disposition. Another factor here, and this is just one of those challenges. You have to understand that for most of the people in the world, and I know this is very true in Asia, there is a much greater cost to them in turning to Jesus Christ than there is for us. Because turning to Jesus Christ for them is a rejection, a whole-scale rejection of their family, their family traditions, their parents. I mean, it would be like you walking into your parents' house today and saying, I disown you, and I don't ever want to see you again. Get out of my life. I don't want to have anything to do with you. What? <laughs> That's radical. But for them it is. It's why you can have a missionary in Japan who's been there for almost 50 years and, and he has a congregation of about 50 people. Why? Because that's a country Shintoism, ancestor worship that, that is built on the honor of family. And, and to, to say that Jesus Christ and his family is more important than yours? Mm. So you're going to do that to us as parents? You're going to turn to a different religion? <laughs> You're, and they know if they do and they truly follow Jesus Christ, probably going to be ostracized, 
Shame on you. You've disrespected and dishonored the family name. Ouch. Who wants to wear that badge? <laughs> right? So there's a greater cost in, in, uh, in many cases in different cultures when people turn away from Hinduism and Buddhism and, and uh, Roman Catholicism and Shintoism. And, and they're just, it's like the cost is going to be total ostracization because you have brought shame on the family name instead of honor. And so you have to take that into account. And that's why you don't witness to a Japanese and be like, okay, you need to make a decision about this right now, today, as you heard the gospel. Yes, you do need to make a decision about it at some point, but, you know, in your task-oriented way of thinking, American, probably not today. Don't put that pressure on them. There's a lot that they have to think through. Like, right, Luke 14. Who goes into a battle without counting the cost, right? You have to count the cost. So, and, and even Jesus said, um, yeah, I came to, uh, a lot of people think I came to bring peace, and I did, but, but there's also a sword <laughs> connected with the gospel. There's also this, uh, 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 a father and his son part ways, because of the gospel and a mother and her daughter and a mother-in-law and her daughter-in-law. And what's he talking about? He's talking about, yeah, Jesus does divide families. And you choose to be a Jesus follower and some family are going to say, yeah, we are disowning you. You've brought shame. That has to be something you seriously think through. And there are a lot of cultures and traditions where that family shame is so strong and so powerful I mean, it just takes an absolutely miraculous work of God for someone to say, nope, I'm going to follow Jesus Christ, no matter the cost. Um, some others. Uh, this is an interesting one. So when you're witnessing to people of a different culture, uh, certain biblical concepts get lost in the translation. I remember teaching a class in the Philippines and we came to the word for reconciliation and, and that doctrine about man being reconciled to God. And they were looking at me very confused. I mean, I could just tell. I'd been there enough that when they got something, they got it and you could see. And when they didn't get something, they looked at you with this blank stare and these eyes that said, what are you talking about? So I stopped in the middle of teaching on reconciliation and I said, okay, wait a minute. Something isn't translating here or coming out right. Can you guys help me? And they said, well, Pastor Mark, in our language, we don't really have an equivalent for the word reconciliation. But the word that would come the closest is this term and then they explained that term, that word to me, and defined that term. And it was only 50% of what the biblical doctrine of reconciliation was. I'm like, oh, okay, I get it now. Because you've grown up with thinking like this about what it means to be reconciled. But here's what the Bible teaches. And so we sat down and had a long conversation, and it was like, that makes sense to me. I can see why you were confused. 
why that word got lost on you, why it didn't make sense to you, because your language teaches this aspect of really reconciliation, but it leaves this out. And they were like, yes, yes, that's what we're... So explain to us the Bible one again. And we went back over it and they're like, yeah, we actually have no word that would be exactly that word for reconciliation. And I was like, okay, that's legit, right? As a teacher, I grew, I understood. I realized something got lost in the translation between terms that we know so well and another culture might be like, huh, what's that? You know, we might talk about justification, right? Another culture might be like, just a what? <laughs> yeah. So that's another challenge when you're speaking with people that they understand biblical uh, language and concepts clearly because they may not have a concept in their culture that relates to that biblical word or doctrine. Another, um, understanding religious exposure and traditions is a key in terms of different cultures because it offers insight into how to present the gospel. For instance, Roman Catholicism, very prevalent in the Philippines, but very different from Roman Catholicism here. Like, what? Really? Yeah. There's one aspect of Roman Catholicism in the Philippines that is very different, and it is, in the Philippines, Roman Catholic tradition, worship, everything about the church is also mixed with a lot of superstition. Just superstition. Almost like, oh, did a black cat cross the road in front of you? And so they live in fear. I mean, they just live in fear about everything all the time. These jinxes in life, these bad things that will happen. I kid you not. Uh, I, I'm microwaving something, okay? And they're like, what are you doing? And I'm like, well, I'm putting something in the microwave. Well, uh, back away. Don't stand there. I'm like, what? Don't stand in front of the microwave. Move over here. I'm like, okay, I'll move over there. Why, why can't I stand in front of the microwave if I'm microwaving something? Well, because those, those waves, they come out, and they mess you up physically, and, they, and it's like, Oh, my word, they live in fear of everything. Just, it, it, I'm, I'm in a taxi, and the guy's taking me to the airport. And I see him, and he's got all these little idol-type things on his dash. And every so often, he'll just reach over, and he'll touch one. And, and then, you know, we'll go by a Catholic church, and he'll do that. And just, so I'm, I'm questioning him. I'm like, okay, so, so just explain that to me. And he's explaining, now this one helps me get, get writers, and, and, uh, and, and so I'm always blessing that one. And this one helps the weather to be good, so people can be, and, and this one helps me to get good tips. He probably threw that one in, you know, for me. And this one, you know, and it's like, wow, this is how they live every moment of every day. It's just this superstitious approach to life. Oh, yes, I believe in God. Oh, yes, I believe in worship. I, 
but don't let the black cat cross the road. Don't get jinxed in this. Don't stand here. Don't. And it's like, so when I share the gospel in the Philippines, you know what I focus on? The peace that Jesus Christ brings and the security that you have in your relationship with him. And it's like, really? Oh, those are, that's completely different way of life for me to have peace, to have security. And so that being, understanding uh, religious traditions and what people have been exposed to is something that can help you to share the gospel. Even in Burma, I went to the most sacred Buddhist temple in the heart of uh, downtown Yangon. And I learned there in talking to people that, um, oh, Buddhism is like, yeah, we're open to knowledge. So we can talk about anything with a Buddhist monk or people there. And I realized, hey, these people are taught that, yeah, let's dialogue about anything. So can we have a dialogue about Jesus? Oh, yeah, sure. Let's sit down. Let's talk about him right now. And I'm like, this is great. I love this. They, they just, their religion of Buddhism actually teaches them to be open to discussing other religions. And that's an honorable thing to have someone to sit down and talk with you about Jesus and say, Okay, we can do that. So you just learn to work within the culture. Uh, last two, and we are closing here. Uh, these are more of the positives in terms of the challenges. There is an openness to listen, especially if you respect the culture. But if you disrespect their culture, their religious leaders, their teachings, or whatever, I'm telling you, they will shut you down. You are done. So it's not a wise thing to say, oh, yeah, you guys, your country believes this. Or you, well, let me tell you all the things that the Bible says, why that's wrong. And what? You're just creating an environment of hostility. And they're not going to go anywhere with that. In fact, the moment you start disrespecting even things that you don't agree with, just be quiet. Just just focus on the positive of the gospel message because they're smart enough to draw the contrast between Jesus and their false religions. They're smart enough. Give them that room. Um, and you also have to be careful not to focus on yourself. Many cultures, especially if you're from Americans, see you as the authority. Have to be so careful in the Philippines. I went there and I gave an invitation and it was like, Almost everyone came forward. I'm like, oh, I can't do this. I get, and so I talked with the pastors, and like, what? And they're like, well, you're from America, and you went to a Bible college, and so of course you're the authority, and they're all just going to kind of come and bow down. So you know what? When I go to the Philippines now, I never give an invitation. I let the local pastors get up and do it. I don't. Here's another thing: if you're sharing the gospel in the Philippines. They may just pray the prayer. And if they did something you wanted them to do, then maybe they can get you to do something they want you to do. Like, hey, do you have like 500 pesos you can loan me? <laughs> I'll pray your prayer. And maybe that'll help us have a little 
monetary <laughs> exchange here. Ooh, got to be careful on that one. And lastly, most cultures positively acknowledge God or the Bible or Jesus or something religious, which can always give you an inroad into conversation. And this is often a good starting point for discussion, conversation, questions, because we all experience birth and death and significant events and traumatic events. And so ultimately, patience and spirit conviction win the day. I've been in China, and it's like, okay, nationally, you know, we don't believe in God, and we don't teach God. And we, but if you ask most Chinese people, hey, do you believe there's a God? Well, I know it's not politically correct to say yes, but... I know what my government teaches, but yes, I believe there's a God. Oh, okay. That's a good starting point. So even when governments tyrannically say we're atheist or we're, we, God doesn't exist, right? you will find that in most cultures, most thinking people are like, yeah, no, <laughs> I don't believe what my government teaches about that. So anyway, just some insights, maybe those will be things that can help you in terms of sharing the gospel with other cultures that are right around you here in Cary. And uh, Will, in the morning service, we're going to look through Acts 17 and see, how did Paul do it? And it really is an amazing passage. Thank you. God bless.